What are you doing out in the snow? It's 32 degrees below zero Celsius and my dad is working hard looking beyond the extents of hypothermia, hypochondria and all the elements combined, he works to build a fence. A true servant, a true worker, a true exhibit of hard work and ethics. This is my father in whom I am well pleased. Hey, it's me again. Does your job still suck? Are you still mad at your job and therefore life sucking? Then you should join the Bitcoin podcast Slack, where the people there don't suck, or at least their jobs don't. So, in essence, their lives don't either. Join the Slack. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. This show is intended for information purposes only, but we're not experts. We're just two guys within the Bitcoin community. Bitcoin is an experiment in the separation of money and state. You'll be surprised how many will support that. And adoption is the only thing that matters. Hey everybody, welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast number 68. I'm your first host, Cello. And I'm host number two, D. Host number three, Corey. And I'm so host number four and a half. <laughs> Valeria. Three and a half, four, whichever. <laughs> after three. Host after three, Valerian. Representing Pop Chest. Pop Chest. Pop Chest in the have on. He had a few questions about some things, so. You can come on and talk to us a little bit, but first, Marcello has a few things to say to you personally. <laughs> I think we've all been relieved to uh, to see the debate take on a more civil tone over the last day or two. And however we feel about the fork, and in the interest of respectful disagreement and helping us to arrive at a considered consensus, we we brought him on. So he's going to join us at the round table. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, we got what's up? Who's him? 
You didn't even say Mr. Who Bennett. He, I Hilarious. think people are following along. Yeah. <laughs> um, right? We're good? Yep. Okay. Uh, we're brought to you by EscrowMyBits.com. Um, look, let me tell you about them. They're super fast. It's super easy. Anyone can figure this out because it only takes three steps. All you got to do is register, deposit your Bitcoin, and the seller ships the item. Then you, the buyer, will check the goods and release the funds. And they also offer Bitcoin escrow with a locked exchange rate. So they charge a small flat escrow fee of 1% on all the transactions. And they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party. Me, Dimitrik, and Corey, we want there to no longer be any excuses on why not to use escrow. That's why we talk about them every episode. So start the escrow process, go to their website, make sure you sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date. That website is escrowmybits.com. And also, a great way to donate to the podcast is to go to our website, thebitcoinpodcast.com, and click on the purse.io banner, and then you can make all your Amazon purchases and save 15%. And they're going to give us a little kickback, and you can show us a little love and save yourself some money. Um, So just go to the website and click that banner. Boom. You forgot to, uh, to sing the slogan. Escrowmybits.com. <laughs> it's getting different. I'm honing it down. Oh, purse. Oh, yeah. We should make the purse slogan. Get your shit with purse. We say get your shit pretty much for anyone that we try. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have get a your shit with Escrow My Bits. The stream your shit on Popchest. And then, like, <laughs> so we're. That's going to be our only slogan we say for everyone. We're not very good at that, but it works. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, escrowmybits.com. Hey, Corey, somebody somebody checked you in the last episode, but we, we keep telling people we're not experts, but people assume we're experts. Oh, no, this is great so because we say a lot, and I don't I mean, yeah, we're not experts. We're just people who probably follow the space closer than the vast majority so we have a pretty good idea about things, but it, it, we're just, there's certain times where we're wrong. Or we may say something that is maybe ambiguous or confusing and then taken in a different light, or just say something that's. Yeah, yeah catch me up on uh, on what the on what the controversy was. Okay, so I um, last episode I was talking about the the bug of the of the DAO and how it was um, part of a certain function that's used in a lot of solidity contracts and i and i i guess haphazardly said that this bug affects all DAOs, uh and so they're probably as vulnerable as um as the DAO. and so mm. that is not necessarily 100 percent accurate and someone corrected me alex that's all we have is his name alex he wrote to um he commented on the website and i'll just read it verbatim he said, hey guys, love the podcast. Just wanted to drop by and correct some things that Corey said regarding the recursive call bug being possible in ex- One, the bug found by the maker devs was in the contract that runs the maker X, which is their P2P token exchange, not the maker DAO itself. After sco- discovering the bug, the team quickly moved the funds to a secure wallet and are in the, are, and are in the act of dispersing them to the owners. I have personally spoken to a member of the team who clarified this misconception to me. Two, the digits DAO is not vulnerable to the specific bug, the recursive call bug, way for owners of DGD tokens to withdraw 
their DAO's funds or to split. Furthermore, much of their DAO's governance and the Digix platform itself is still under active, still under active security conscious developments and the team has been exceptionally prudent from day one. For what it's worth, I believe DGD is the most undervalued coin on the market. This is and as Dee was saying in the end, it's impossible to stay up to speed on everything, but please just be mindful in the future about what you say regarding vulnerabilities of projects that make people. Lots of developers who are being very careful and are writing modular code that can be updated. Anyway, love your show and think you guys are rad. Keep up the good work. So that's the only one he said. And we definitely appreciate people like that coming, talk, commenting on um, what we've said and correcting us, especially in the manner that he did. So coming back to that, I'd like to thank him and say that I guess what's more true and what I was probably trying to say in the first place, any offshoot of the DAO, all of these split DAOs, and anything that was essentially birthed from the DAO contract has the exact same code and has the same vulnerabilities. And this vulnerability was found in a separate contract vis-a-vis the maker um, not the maker DAO, but you know the maker P2P token exchange. So there's a possibility that this type of thing could be, could be happening in other smart contracts. They should be weird into it. So kind of check what you're doing to make sure you don't have the same problem and fix it like the maker DAO has. And anything that's happened with the DAO and the contracts surrounding it, it's they all have the same vulnerabilities. So we have this. What's currently going on, we have these white hack, hack attacks that have essentially done the same thing that the attacker did to the DAO to move all of the remaining funds into a separate DAO by the white hat hackers, essentially the curators of the DAO. And then we have, it's, but the problem with this is um, the dark DAO, the attacker DAO, and the white hack, they call themselves the Robin Hood DAO because why not? Uh, they have the exact same code as the original DAO, which means this can just keep going on forever under the right. The only yeah. way to really fix this cleanly is to hard fork. Otherwise, we're going to go back and forth, back and forth of these attacks. And it's just become, I think it just, it'll just continue on forever and no one's going to get their money. It'll just be locked up in the soft fork and people will just play to try and fix this shit forever right so there's uh, a couple of things and and before we get into the the soft fork hard fork let me take a step back and just a little bit about myself i'm i came to uh to all of this um in a previous life i was a television editor so my background is in storytelling um so that sort of pushed me into get into micropayments for video but to get to the storytelling part i think it's really interesting how the story is being um, the narrative of a story is, and the the way that you craft the narrative, if you do it right, it determines people's perception of the story, right? So the fact that we're referring to um, the dark Dow versus the white hats, right? It infers this one's good, this one's bad, um, yeah. and I'm a, and I don't know how popular this thought is. I'm one of those people who doesn't think the dark Dow did anything wrong, right? The code is the code. That's at least what it's supposed to be. Um, so when we start to get into these, you know, the perception of, oh, well, this person hacked this, this person 
is somehow um, behaving illegally or immorally, you know, just because that's what the narrative is. I don't necessarily think that's true. That's a very interesting point and something that I don't, it has been brought up a few times in the things that I've read and listened to, but it's not being heart like harped on because everyone's emotional. Right. Uh, but you have this misconception between what is immutable and where the consensus lies. And so you have, and, and typically people use words that try and incite emotions such as dark Dow, Robin hood Dow to paint the narrative exactly like you said, so that there's, there's really like, if you're just reading it as a passive onlooker, it seems obvious where the problem if you take the idea that if you make a smart contract and put it into the in the blockchain, whatever that smart contract allows is the law, then this person does nothing wrong. Exactly. If That's you take kinda... the idea that we try to make smart contracts for a specific reason and the community decides what those reasons are for, and when someone takes advantage of it, it screws people, then I guess the consensus lies with the community and not so much the immu the immutable code of the smart contract. And it's really an idea of where do we put our emphasis on what the network should be? Should it be autonomous, agnostic to, to how people use it? Or should it really be a reflection of the community who uses it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same camp as, as, as Val. Uh, just because if it's in the code and you can do that and it says it's there and he did it, then he did it. He wins. I mean, it was like back in the day when you played somebody who used Guile at Street Fighter 2. You know that sweep <laughs> kick is coming back around. You know the sweep kick's coming back around. You block it or you jump over it. Like, I mean, that's the thing is if, if it was in the code, then it's in the code. But on the other hand, I could see the other point as the DAO is supposed to be something that's supposed to protect consumers at the end of the day. And in order to preserve the purity and preserve the, I don't know, the essence of the DAO, then, you know, maybe we do need to hard fork and work around back to a point where at least we can build that consumer protection. So mm, it's, it's a tough to it is because tough. these are really, really issues to it's like, a lot of people feel the way that y'all feel about this is that they, they did nothing wrong because they only used what the code allowed because there's mm -hmm. nothing else you can do yeah it's it's tough man ultimately though like i'm in the camp with you val but i think the other decision is best moving forward i, I guess that puts me in two camps and i can't do that you can't do that <laughs> no i i to 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 kind of go to the end i'm i feel like i'm in the same place as you are which is um, ultimately the consensus is what governs anything, right? Mm -hmm. So if this is the consensus to do the hard fork, do the soft fork, whatever it may be, then that's fine. I'm totally fine with that. But the way, I guess, just what I'd like to see is more of, hey, we screwed up. We're going to try to fix it with this consensus rather than painting um, what this person did or team of people, whoever it may be, um, painting it as what they did is wrong because they haven't done anything wrong in my eyes. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't fix what the problem is. I'm glad that they are fixing it. And ultimately it looks like when it's all said and done, if we can, um, if the community sort of figures the, the technical way out of it, uh, the problem will be reversed and that's good for everyone and the $150 million, so on and so forth. 
Um, but I just still don't think you can say this person did anything wrong. I think I found the solution in us just hashing it out right now. Why don't he, why doesn't why doesn't he just become compensated as somewhat of a bug bounty program? We could roll it back to where people can take their money out if they want to, and he hasn't drained the Dow. And they haven't done all this crazy computer science stuff. And then he gets a nice little proposal written to the Dow where he gets a nice, huge bug bounty payout. He's happy. Community's happy. Well, it it, it, almost the picture's already been painted. And then burn that bitch down and paint a new painting. (laughs) As easy as that sounds, it's not that easy. It's people already feel, especially Dow token holders. They feel ripped off. And this is partly because of the people who are in control, the people who are, um, I guess, who have marketed this so well and then have gained reputation in a sense that people will listen to whatever they say, have painted it in this against this like severe picture. And then for them to turn around and say, well, we're going to give them some money anyway. We thank them for finding the buck would be a complete reversal of what they're trying to do or currently trying to do, it would have to maybe that's something that the also the community would have to hash out. And I I don't think personally the I think but then again he didn't find the bug. He just used the bug that everyone already knew about. Well everyone that followed the people who reported bugs. This was known about at least a week in advance. Yeah. Sure. I keep reading that. And so yeah, I th- go ahead. Oh, I think that that message, though, I think that message should come not from the DAO, but I think it should come from uh, the Ethereum developers, really, because at this point, the DAO is dead. It, in effect, doesn't matter anymore. What matters is saving the Ethereum network and really the idea of smart contracts broadly. Um, so I think if the message comes from that direction, I, I totally think it's a very sellable point. I agree with that to pay him a little bit of loot and then roll everyone wins go home (laughs) we've we declare victory and go home the thing about politics is that most people in the cryptocurrency space don't do it well at all (laughs) like you don't have public fights with people about really technical shit and you don't treat people like crap in public forums and it's just bad they don't handle themselves well nobody's good at it the way to handle it is hey (laughs) congratulations robin hood you got all that money but this is computer science so we're just gonna roll this back and we're gonna pay you a lot to still be a part of the community because obviously you have a lot of skills and assets to add to the community if you can pull off something like this we don't want to lose you but we are going to take this money back and then give you a nice chunk of it. And you can either take that and run with it, or you can say, say la vie and get the fuck out of Dodge, you know, but you're not getting the money, all of it. So that's your answer right there. That's it. That's somebody put me on some sort of decision-making team for things. Write that shit up in the hard fork. Yep. And that's what we'll do. That's what we're going to do. Sign the treaty, get it done. Mm-hmm. so i think i guess uh we should probably switch to the interview from here and then discuss uh, whatever questions you may have had on differences between how the forks work after the interview 
All right. The uh, so the main the main reason why he's on is because, from my understanding, Stephen Tool accused Goon Sarir of of knowing but not disclosing the bug, and this escalated to accusations that he was the DAO hacker. Um, it, it was kind of unprofessional conduct at at Slocket, but he worked hard to help them and the community, and they responded by accusing him of a felony. So the big stink is that. Uh, Slocket's team's general assumption is that he should work for free to fix their mistakes. So we get him on the show to kind of sound off. And as you know, as of right now, for my money, he's probably one of the most important members of the community. So this is a good interview. Well, right. here it is. Let's do it. All right. So once again, we have uh, Dr. Sarir on the show to talk about um, a little more technical details as well as general overview of what's happened, uh, where we may be going, why it's important, um, who's doing things maybe possibly in, in a, in wrongly, and what we can, why it's important, or what lessons we may have learned from all this. So um, everyone knows what's happened to the DAO. It's been attacked. It's been attacked through the recursive call bug, which you can get into maybe a little bit later in terms of what implications that means for how we fix it. But, I mean, what do you attribute this attack too is it is it more along the lines of poor programming practices a poor programming language the solidity or um just general general like lack of knowledge for how to do these types of things um that's okay so we jumped right into the heart yeah. of the matter yeah. so, <laughs> that's kind of what that. I, i'm curious about mostly indeed yes yes i think i think everybody's followed the, the saga and it's about time to start asking, well, maybe it's maybe a little early because we still haven't sorted out the current mess, but, but we should be starting to ask this question of where did we go wrong? Um, maybe not so much focus on pointing fingers. There's been a lot of that happening. I found it very unprofessional because for reasons I'm not really clear about, the fingers were pointed at me, um, which is absolutely ludicrous. Um, but, uh, but without finger-pointing individuals, um, at individuals, maybe we can talk about, you know, where did we go wrong and how did the, um, how did the technology kind of uh, fail us? So let's, uh, let's start from, from the very top level. Um, before I say anything, I have to first remark on just how amazing this whole thing is, right? It's absolutely fascinating. That's why we're here. Um, I, can, I can tell just from having talked to you for a few minutes beforehand, Everybody who knows anything about this is actually super excited about the possibilities. The smart contract spaces, we knew, like the geeky people among us, we, we knew um, that this was exciting. But now we're actually seeing the smart contracts get, get mainstream, maybe not so mainstream, maybe tech edge mainstream, right? So tech edge interest, and, and there will be more to come. Right? This first experiment got it was a huge success in, in its initial phases. It ended up getting more than $200 million. That's fascinating to me. It's, it's just, this is great. We have to congratulate all of us, you know, everybody involved, including the Slocket team. Uh, they did a remarkable job of marketing this thing. Yeah. So, so it's, <laughs> you know, it cuts both ways, right? Maybe yeah. they overmarketed it. And uh, so that's, that's been fascinating to me. Now, uh, we ended up seeing somebody come in and hack the, the contract. And we ended up seeing uh, the hacker then use game theoretic attacks to try to increase his leverage. And we can talk about what happened there. Um, so it was a multifaceted attack. He ended up taking advantage of various different tricks 
Um, and um, and 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 he's it's just still an ongoing saga. It hasn't uh, reached a conclusion yet. And so, where did we go wrong? Um, I think overall it was uh, so. As I said, it was a, it's it's a, without pointing fingers. It's a social thing. We we got overtaken by the promise of of uh, of, of DAOs of the general term decentralized autonomous organizations, and we tried to impute all of the functions of a real organization onto a single program. It's hard enough to write a simple, contained, easy program that operates on a single machine. Writing something that runs an investment fund with absolutely no oversight um, on the back end. Um, there's some oversight in the DAO in the form of curators. But once the once a proposal has been vetted by the curators, and, uh, and that process is also ill-defined. It's not really clear what they were supposed to vet and by which standard. But once that's done, it's sort of out of your hands, and this thing has its own timelines. It just kind of ticks along, and it makes decisions and so forth. It's it's just it's crazy to hope that we could have gotten that correct. And uh, what did we do? Well, um, there were absolutely no escape hatches built into this particular construct. In fact, it was probably engineered to not have any escape hatches. And um, that's a, that was a, I would say, that was not a well-thought-out design decision. Uh, but it was, I think, a deliberate design decision. I think they thought about what they could do, and they decided it's best if this thing is free from human interference of any kind. And, uh, and I think that that was one of the problem, uh, problems. Uh, there were a lot of arbitrarily chosen sort of mechanisms that, in retrospect, are incredibly complex, and uh, they failed. They failed to capture, like, had it not been hacked, it still would not have worked. We know that this thing would have failed to capture the true intent of the crowds. So that's a huge problem in and of itself. Um, and once it got hacked, it's very hard to unwind. There was no no thought given to well, how we would actually react to, uh, to a situation like this. There is no way to carry forward all state. There is this extra balance field which is going to be a big pain in the neck to try to unravel. So there's some ether stuck in some field of the original DAO. Um, if, if, it, if the object had been designed, if the smart contract had been designed from the get-go with an eye towards sort of reliable engineering, with an eye towards being able to upgrade it later, we would be in a different spot. Uh, had it been designed with fail-safes, where you know, if you see something terrible happening, you can shut it down with a kill switch, it, we would be in a different space. But instead, we found ourselves in our current predicament, which I think is, uh, uh, it's brought attention to Ethereum, but not the good kind of attention. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, two main questions that I, that I have in this particular area is, 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 can we blame it on the difference between Solidity and the EVM, like that, that kind of where it, the high-level high, high level programming language, the low-level programming language, translation, or do we blame it on the culture of developers that we currently have in terms of, I have kind of put it, the front-end developers to smart contract writers? We don't have a lot of the low-level programmers we used to have back in the day with Fortran and C, and we had to kind of worry about the really low-level concepts. Most of it's just garbage collection. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question. So let's actually start by... Um, uh, by, by eliminating some culprits. The EVM is blameless in all of this. There is no EVM bug that was affected um, in this hack. 
and uh, the EVM did its part perfectly, which I think is a great sign. So Ethereum has made a lot of forward progress. The foundation seems to be holding up. Um, Solidity, so it's going to turn out, I think, to be the case that there is blame that is sort of spread out all around. Um, Solidity itself is is a nice language. It has a lot of features and it has to fulfill a particular niche. So um, I had a long conversation with, uh, with Christian uh, Reitervecke, I think is his last name. I'm probably butchering it. Uh, but the designer of Solidity this morning. And, uh, and his predicament is difficult. Um, so we know in computer science that there are languages specifically designed for writing state machines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're, spe- you know, they're specialized languages. You can ask interesting questions about the resulting state machine. They make everything explicit. But they are hideous to look at. So, so on the one hand, had he chosen a language like that, it would be analyzable more easily maybe by tools and so forth. It would be much more amenable to automated reasoning. But nobody would have picked it up. Ethereum would have failed. So on the other hand, um, if you go all the way towards JavaScript, then, then you're in, in the land where, which is, I think, what uh, they ended up doing. And um, then you have a much more palatable language to the current masses. And so that's good. Um, and people look at it and they think it's familiar. They, they take a jump in towards uh, building dApps and so forth. So that's good. Um, but then it creates a lot of issues. And you have to pay attention to uh, what we call anti-patterns, that is, things Solidity is so complex that you can do anything in it, and you can easily do things that are wrong in it, that, that lead to security holes. And, uh, and there is some blame uh, to, be, uh, to be levied against Solidity in the sense that there was this problem about calls to external contracts, and, uh, and we just, uh, um, you know, we knew it. We knew it from a long time ago, but, uh, but there are a lot of uh, obvious, um, you know, there are a lot of high-profile contracts that actually exhibit this flaw. And, um, and it turned out, of course, that the DAO was stricken with it. So, so there is that issue. And then at a higher level, there are all these game theoretic problems and so forth that the, um, that the DAO programmers did not take into account. Um, so hang on, before I go there, but there's, there's one step in the middle. So the fact that Solidity looks so much like JavaScript brings in a different kind of, of developer here. And uh, so people with front-end web experience are suddenly able to write code that looks kind of okay. And they can develop smart contracts using Solidity in this familiar-looking environment. But it's actually a completely different environment. It's not like front-end web code. Uh, When things break, they break spectacularly. Hmm. And it's much more like writing code for a nuclear power reactor than it is like writing code for you know, Node.js, mm-hmm. right? So if, if it fails, somebody sees something broken on their screen uh, in the Node.js case, whereas in the other case, you know, you've got a big problem and now you have to appeal to the community to change what they're running and maybe issue a fork or whatever else. It's, these are major operations, incredibly painful operations for all concerned. So the fact that we have these developers who are able to to play in this space is great. I welcome and everybody welcomes more people. That's wonderful. Um, but we need to give them additional tools and, uh, and we need to create the kind of culture where these people approach the whole problem with humility. They understand what is expected of them. They understand their responsibilities. They don't just write some, you know, crappy two-bit code and overhype the, the you know, overhype the living crap out of it. That's, that's when you run into trouble. And uh, so, uh, so, so that's, there's that. Um, 
And of course, there's the final issue, which is what I was alluding to before. Um, constructs like the DAO are so complex that they require interdisciplinary expertise. I don't know how to get the DAO right. And I thought about it with the help of two additional colleagues. And it touches upon distributed systems. It touches upon social choice theory from you know, the psychology department and the sociology department. It touches upon game theory. This is an inter interdisciplinary expertise requiring complicated, subtle issue. I can write some, you know, crappy code that, you know, that is, uh, you know, it looks kind of like it does something, uh, but I know enough to say, hey, wait a minute, like this thing is going to poll the audience, but the poll is not going to work out well. It's not going to capture what, what I want it to capture. And the DAO was, was chock full of these kinds of issues where at the game theoretic level, somebody could attack it, somebody could, could, uh, could fund uh, non-deserving proposals. So... Um, so these issues, I think we're going to find that the teams, uh, essentially what we have to do at that level is we have to educate the public and say, look, before you put your money in it, this is your, your hard-earned money, and you're going to be up you know, all night watching the news of the, you know, the Dow hacker versus the white hat hacker, you know, people playing core wars against each other. Before you do that, maybe you should vet the team more carefully. Just the fact that they have a slick website should not be sufficient. You should really think doubly hard about uh, the task at hand and whether the contract really uh, uh, that they put together really satisfies what you need it to satisfy. You know. So go ahead, Dave. I was going to say so. So while we're on that, you know, the topic of the DAO management, why do you say that Slocket and the DAO team is is handling this situation wrong? So I think in the aftermath. They did a few things wrong, um, but mostly they're doing the best they can. They've been they've been dealt a, a funny hand, and uh, they're trying to do the best they can with it. Um, so let's see, what have they done wrong? Before this thing, they really should have sought expertise. And uh, by expertise, I, there's no shortage of, of friendly people in academia who will come to their aid. There's no shortage of other people that they could have just said, hey, we're planning something like this. Um, you know, and here is the rough idea. Maybe write a spec for it beforehand. Like that's a simple thing to do. English spec. Anybody can write this. And here is what I plan to do. You know, this is how the voting process will work. Not the code, just the spec. And that spec could actually be a useful thing to to have in one's hand. Uh, they didn't do that. They did not seek expertise. And um, and so that's that's one huge problem. The second thing that they did is, I believe very deliberately they decided to make this thing be completely autonomous and they did not involve a, a safety switch, a kill switch or any kind of human uh, oversight at the back end um, in the sort of the operation of this thing so it's essentially a money machine um, with, with a lot of automation in it and so somebody who really reads the code carefully and uh, finds out the weaknesses in it, could have manipulated it into giving out that cash to non-deserving proposals. That's exactly what this fellow did. He ended up taking advantage of you know, low-level problems, high-level problems. He just did everything across the whole spectrum. So those are big, big missteps prior to the release. They, they really went very quickly um, and, and, and hyped this thing that really needed another six months of scrutiny and development, in my opinion. Um, so in the aftermath, the, um, their handling has, has been, um, 
It's been pretty bad, actually. So there's no other way to put this. Um, there are some standard mistakes that you are not supposed to make when people have, you know, they come to you with security disclosures, when they come to you with concerns. And, uh, and rule number one is do not blame the messenger. That's just, if you do, you're not going to get messengers. When somebody finds a flaw, they will not report it to you. Worse, um, if you're out there blaming messengers, then you create a terrible toxic environment. The smarter people are going to look at this and be like, these guys, they don't know what they're doing. They're attacking researchers uh, who are trying to help. I'm going to take my marbles and go elsewhere. Right? And this is in some sense what's kind of happening in the Bitcoin space. People are, have slowly left Bitcoin towards the cooler, shinier product, Ethereum. And so there's a lot of goodwill towards Ethereum and Ethereum products. There's a lot of us excited about the platform. We want it to succeed. And so elements in that community who are pushing people away do a disservice to everybody. And uh, so in the aftermath, I think the, the attacks levied against me were just unconscionable, in my opinion, completely unacceptable. Um, just the, the, from the very initial call for a moratorium until recently they you know these they're anonymous trolls on the on the internet now like saying things like i'm the dow hacker yeah. um this uh. is that's a felony accusation and you know i was there to help them the last thing i need to face is a felony accusation from the person i'm trying to help out so uh, it's completely unconscionable it's a it's, it's this is all kind of new space to be in and and I, I guess coming back to that first question is uh, there isn't a, an amount of utilities that we can build to let people just automatically make good, solid, smart contracts. Like there is no research button. You have to kind yeah. of go through the process, make mistakes, and reiterate what you do. But we've yeah. kind of blown it up way too fast and then now seeing the, you know, the spectacular failure of it. And in the aftermath of that, people are trying to find reasons to, to point where it was almost obvious that the first iteration of these incredibly complex cross-disciplinary things are probably going to break. Mm -hmm. So from here, like, what is the most detrimental thing we can do to moving forward? Um, most detrimental, most, most positive thing. Uh, the most positive, so I'm actually still super positive about the entire space, and I think good will come out of this spectacular failure. So um, just like the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, you know, spectacular failure, absolutely horrible to watch, um, very dramatic, but we learned how to build big bridges after that, and we haven't had a repeat ever since. So um, I think these are growing pains for the Ethereum community. I think on the whole and in the long term, I am supremely positive about about Ethereum. It's going to be much more robust. The basic, the most foundational level, the EVM, in my opinion, has already proven itself in many ways. Uh, there might still be bugs in it, but, you know, it's held up. Um, solidity will, will require a, another look in the sense that does it really sort of channel your Joe Average developer or Jane Average developer towards writing secure code? And, um, and I don't know that Solidity itself needs to change, but we need to build some infrastructure on top uh, that, that allows people to write secure code. So those are good, good things, the outcomes from this. And if socially also we build, 
the community needs to, every community needs an immune system, right? And what is the immune system of a society? Well, we have laws, but more importantly, we have beliefs that we all hold on to. When we see somebody being, you know, uh, I don't know, acting in some antisocial manner, we, we are already trained to say, no, don't do that. That really goes and destroys the core of what we all stand for. And so I think we are going to be more attuned to these uh, overly hyped products in the future. So when you see the next big slick website, you know, decentralized, autonomous, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff, I think people will, well, I don't know if they will, I hope, it's my <laughs> honest hope, that they will take a step back and say, wait a minute, before I put my money into this thing, uh, could this thing be overhyped? And, um, and, and have these guys done their due diligence uh, appropriately? I think those questions need to be asked. I'm hoping that after this episode, they will be asked. So I guess moving forward, what would a hard fork do and what would a hard fork not do? Um, so there are many ways of doing these forks. And uh, let's see. Um, so I'm of the, of the camp that I believe that we should just excise the bad code. I think the DAO episode was a, was a bad episode. There's nothing societally good that came out of it. It didn't do its job, right? And it got robbed on day three or something, or day five, whenever it was. Um, and uh, we should just undo it. It's, it's just a mistake, and we should just admit that it was a mistake and undo it. Now, um, uh, the hard fork, the beautiful thing about the hard fork is, especially in Ethereum, is that you don't have to unroll everything to, you know, Friday morning, whatever time it was. Okay, so uh, in Bitcoin, that's what you would have had to do. Uh, but in Ethereum, it's possible to selectively undo some of the operations uh, that are sort of related or causally followed the, uh, the initial hack. So we can identify those, undo them, and then restore everything back to the, the not everything, restore the DAO to the state that it was in prior to the hack. And that would be the most fantastic outcome. Um, we would then change the DAO code to replace it with some, uh, some, some alternative code that just allows people to take their money out. This, I believe, would be the simplest, easiest path. It reduces liability on Slocket. It keeps them from being, you know, I think with this approach in mind, I think the chances that they will face lawsuits is lowest. Um, it's, uh, it's clean to implement, it's simple to implement, and it's quick to implement. And the sooner we put this episode behind us, the better it is for everybody, for the community, for Ethereum's image, for optics, for press. It's just, it's just better. We've learned everything there is to learn from this. I think, um, I don't know if Slocket folks have learned it. They don't seem too contrite to me, uh, but everybody else has learned it. And I think that's maybe the best that we can hope for. So you've, you've actually gone through a few of these you know, I wouldn't call them conferences, but get-togethers or meetups of some sort, and discuss what what the next iteration of this is. This is definitely the first iteration of what's to come, uh, of probably, in my opinion, the way a lot of businesses or organizations run themselves or organize money. What yep. what do we? What's the next? What's two point What are we fixing? What are we changing? Great. So excellent question. Um, I think we're going to to to. This is essentially the first step towards sort of figuring out a classification for smart contracts. There exists a class of smart contracts out there that require absolutely no human intervention, right? So the simplest example I can give for this is if I go to a gambling website, I want that gambling website to be fair, provably fair, 
It's very simple, and I don't want any possibility of human meddling in that operation. That's, that's what I want. And so for that class of contracts, we really don't want any, any, any sort of um, overhead, any kind of uh, regulation, any kind of procedures that force humans into the loop. It, it is an advantage to not have humans in that loop. But we've also learned, I think, that, um, that there are many other contracts that are so complex in nature that they need at least a kill switch that will fire under certain circumstances. And uh, so for DAO 2.0 type of, well, DAO 2.0 type operations, as well as other complex smart contracts, a very, very uh, uh, conservative thing to do would be to, to, to add features to Solidity so that a smart contract programmer can say, here is an internal invariant I want. Okay, so here is, here is a set of circumstances where if this happens, okay, then I want you to shut down the, uh, the contract and put it into a fail-safe mode. So, for example, you can say, well, if the, if the uh, number of tokens and the amount of ether and then maybe some checksum field, etc., if they don't all match up, then in that case, you should go into fail-safe. And these kinds of things could have stopped the hacker in his tracks. Um, and there are other, other things that we've learned from this episode as well. In particular, when it comes to actual DAO-like organizations, that is, investment vehicles driven by the crowd, then um, the current set of processes that this crowd of developers selected are completely insufficient. They would never have worked to capture the, the, uh, the crowd's interest. This thing was supremely biased towards positive votes. So it was really dumb money sitting there and um, I was thinking of going before it with a proposal, and uh, I know a bunch of other people who were. Oh, yeah. And uh, for the Definitely. simple reason that it was this thing was like cash machine; it was going to pay out. It's, it's designed to do that. So, um, um, so can we design DAO 2.0 to to actually capture what the crowd wants? And and I, this is a, a topic that I've given some thought to. And uh, there are some impossibility results in this space. Academics have been looking at this for a long time. And the answer is not an immediate, yes, we can. The answer is, we're going to have to think really hard about the features of that next uh, vehicle. And uh, it might not be as easy as one might imagine. Uh, well, we might have to give up certain features we might want in, in favor of others. Um, so that is still an ongoing discussion within my group. Uh, there are a couple of us here at Cornell who are uh, really excited about this topic. Uh, it's, it's definitely a nuanced, nuanced and, and non-trivial um, topic. I think it's going to take some study, take some thought to get it right. You know, something that may come out of this that's, that's easy, better for you is that because all of this spans into multiple uh, areas of study, you can almost apply for grants and just about anywhere you want to just because <laughs> uh, these are social issues these are economic issues these are computational issues distributed systems you name it these are issues that are important and problems we've been trying to solve for a very long time and they it this this is just another bleeding edge area of study in this in this scenario absolutely so i'm i'm uh um, I'm not at all excited about, about the grant situation. <laughs> it turns out um, it's hard enough. It, 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 okay, there is no grant granting institution that allows any researcher to to get money 
out of his own community. So, you know, the migrant yeah. sources are pretty finite and small in nature. Um, and it's always a pain. And, and especially in the current environment in the U.S., it's actually fairly difficult. I'm still optimistic, but it's still fairly difficult. Uh, but what I am really happy about is this has really fostered a lot of interest from my colleagues. I'm really excited about the opportunity to actually collaborate with people across across different fields and uh, and to talk to people who understand social choice, people who understand um, uh, game theory, people who understand, you know, distributed systems, of course, um, and um, and so at, and economics, most importantly, economics. And so, at the intersection of those different spheres lies a lot of exciting thought, a lot of exciting developments to be had. So that I think is good. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I, I I hope that the the community will will not be turned off. I hope we're not turning people away with this current uncertainty. Um, that's that's partly why I also favor a quick quick resolution. Awesome. So, we the first time we had you on the show, it was more of like a Bitcoin centric uh, discussion. And recently on your blog, Hacking Distributed, for those that don't know, uh, you've had a lot of thought. You've documented a lot of thoughts on the Ethereum community, especially surrounded by the DAO. So, as the Cornell professor, not a Cornell professor, but the, I guess. <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts on the difference between Bitcoin and the Ethereum communities? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let's see. So, you know, we started out uh, from just Bitcoin. That was my, well, I started out on a system called Karma back in 2002 that had proof of work in it. But uh, my first foray into cryptocurrencies that, you know, as, as the mainstream knows them now, was with Bitcoin. And uh, we, uh, we found a bunch of flaws in Bitcoin um, and we fixed them. And uh, then we did a bunch of core developments that helped Bitcoin. Uh, we have a new relay network for Bitcoin. We have a bunch of, uh, you know, changes to the, the way the consensus layer works there to make it perform better, to sidestep the block size debate and so forth. So I know the Bitcoin community fairly well. And um, I've come to know the Ethereum community fairly well. Vitalik was, uh, uh, has been a great, uh, great person to collaborate with, and we've been collaborating with him even prior to the official announcement related to Ethereum. So he spent a bunch of time here, and Vlad Zamfir has spent a bunch of time here. We, we're doing a lot of joint activities with the Ethereum Foundation. So I've come to know the two communities, and it's, it's quite different. So... Uh, one, when you look at the sort of the big, big picture, it all seems like, you know, to laymen, it looks like, oh, it's the cryptocurrency community. But there are big, big fundamental differences between the Ethereum communities and Bitcoin community. Um, I, I have seen, um, okay, so I don't want to be too judgy about this, but I think that the Ethereum community is incredibly open to collaboration and incredibly positive. And the Bitcoin community, um, I've seen it at its best, and it's at its best, it's wonderful. But I've also seen it at its worst. And the, the pump and dumpers there, the people who are in it for short-term gains, uh, they are quite numerous. And, um, and I think we're in a, maybe a sweet spot with Ethereum in the, in the sense that the people who are in it are really here who are attracted by the core technology. So that's maybe why... Uh, they're a bit more science-friendly. They're a bit more open-minded. They are not there to just make money quick, but they're they're there to really understand the limits of this new technology. So, so there, that's maybe the difference. Uh, Bitcoin has attracted a lot of uh, a lot of scams. Everybody knows this. This is no secret. Um, time will tell if Ethereum will develop in the same way. 
but I think that is a real fundamental difference. And um, as uh, um, you know, as somebody who's who's sort of watched both communities evolve, I think um, you know I, I I really like the way the Ethereum community has uh, uh, generally conducted its its affairs. It's it's been fun to watch. We've gotten a lot of support from uh, everybody involved in Ethereum. Um, uh, you know, during this whole debacle with Slocket, you know, lobbying accusations and, and trying to attack researchers and so forth, everybody else has been incredibly supportive. So, so it's been great in that sense. So th- those are the two big differences I see between the two communities. You know, reflecting on that difference, it's, it's, it's possible that this overwhelming positive uh, developer-centric community of Ethereum may have contributed to the way the DAO blew up in the first place because everyone's excited about the next best thing and how it's going to take over and the the app that makes Ethereum great. And that general idea of just sitting at the edge of your seat waiting for this type of thing may have contributed to the 200 plus million dollars that got put into it incredibly quickly. Uh, but- so that's true. So that's true. So, so philosophy-wise, Bitcoin is uh, very slow to evolve and fairly conservative, and uh, and people generally just do what's known as HODL, right? H O D L. The the local nomenclature for just holding on to your cash and waiting for deflation to take you to the moon. Um, in contrast, the Ethereum folks, you know, they're really excited about the technology. They're very eager to adopt the bleeding edge. And this has served Ethereum very well. And um, if you look at the core of Ethereum, it works very, very well. Um, the, uh, the What else is happening with Ethereum? They, um, they, uh, they end up uh, um, developing a lot of exciting applications. And they get excited about this. And they use it. And this is wonderful. These are good things we want to keep on, on, on having happen. Um, the issue then is, of course, did that contribute to the DAO euphoria? Yeah, of course. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, and it was too high a price to pay a little too early on. I think that's uh, that's the concern. So I'm I'm okay with some failures on occasion. That's totally fine in a healthy system. Um, this was a bit big, so that's yeah. why I, I support the fork. The grandiose nature of it may be a little too big for how early it is in the, in the platform. Yeah. And it puts the, the shift to, you know, there's a planned uh, change to proof of stake. And, uh, and it's, it's a little dangerous to have a hacker hold, you know, whatever percent of the, of the ether out there as you shift to proof of stake. We, we certainly cannot continue in a world without a fork. We have to do something to undo, undo this. I agree with that. So uh, try to wrap this up. We've already gone quite a bit. We don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you've got important things to do. Uh, so we've gotten your previous answer uh, to this, and I'm maybe I'm thinking it's changed over since the last time we've talked to you. Uh, in 10 words or less, can you describe cryptocurrencies? Whoa. <laughs> you did this last time too, and it was so hard back then too. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think you failed spectacularly. <laughs> I failed spectacularly last time, and now I'm going over my budget of 10 words. Um, Mulligan. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, no, I'm totally failing it. Give me a second. Last time I had the tie, I think, and I, I could just sort of like lob it at him and then buy some time. Um, 10 words or less. Uh, crypto. Cri- I don't know what I can say about cryptocurrency. Smart contracts, in ten words or less, are um, um, are uh, 
oh, it's just going to be so hard. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> you're the first person that said, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's it's so hard. You're, you're, you guys remember um, uh, Feynman when they asked him to summarize, you know, how he got his Nobel Prize. And then he was like, no, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the famous one. I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> it's just, yeah, some things are hard to reduce. So it's very hard to be pithy and to sort of summarize my excitement about the ability to automate those things that you really can automate, right? And um, um, and so that that's where the excitement lies. And it's dangerous when you try to overdo it uh, and you try to automate everything. And that's when you get the DAO type situations and then you're just sort of out of the, the boundary of what is known to be doable. Um, so it's very hard to be nuanced about it in 10 words or less. I apologize to your viewers. I wish I had a better answer for this. Now, I actually um, appreciate that, that you know, the, 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 comp the situation is too complex, but I also really enjoy seeing people struggle, try and form abstractions around something so complex. So that's pretty great. much the reason why we ask it in the first place. It's an impossible question. <laughs> great. Okay. All right. Well, on that note of failure. <laughs> <laughs> So I do hope moving forward that uh, we're going to put the DAO situation behind us. Um, I hope that uh, we will build, uh, you know, a set of new generation of DAPs that are exciting and, and you know, live up to the promise, the, the doable promise of smart contracts. Um, I hope that the people involved are going to learn their lesson. I hope that socially we'll put in place the right kinds of structures so that we don't get carried away by the next set of people who are selling something that is just maybe too good to be true. Um, and uh, there's a glorious future that awaits us. This really will revolutionize how we build a lot of, uh, of, of things that are sort of currently encoded in human processes, and we're going to automate them. It's going to be awesome, and I can't wait. We are right there along with you, and uh, we thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you will continue to do, you and your group. So, Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank, thank you, you for stopping much. by. And for those thank of you, you listening, check out the blog, Hacking Distributed. It's amazing. So, Great. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Dr. Sir. Bye. And uh, that was the interview with uh, the Cornell professor, as the internet refers to him or as we like to call him, uh, Dr. Goon Serer. Um Amazing Bitcoin individual. Batman. Bitcoin Batman. Even though, shout out to Nathan Wozniak, <laughs> you call yourself Bitcoin Batman, but I don't know. Maybe you're like uh, Michael Keaton and Goon Serer. There are multiple Batmans. We can have multiple Bitcoin Batmans. Yeah, there's, there's multiple Batmans. You're, you're like the Michael Keaton Batman. That's cool. The What's the name of the director that did Nightmare Before Christmas? Tim Burton. Tim Burton. Tim, yeah, you're Tim Burton, Batman, Wozniak, and Goon Serrera is definitely uh, like Christopher Nolan, Batman. Christopher Nolan, Batman. Uh, but nevertheless. Yeah. Not, not Jules Schumacher, Batman. <laughs> I don't even know what a Jules Schumacher is. But. He did the one with uh, where Arnold was the bad guy, right? Where he was like the freezing Mr. guy. Freeze. Wait. Yeah. Welcome to the Ice Age. <laughs> you need to chill out. Anyways, <laughs> pause. Why, why do you know that director like really like you knew that guy's name extra fast? Jello. Hey, I'm a film nerd. <laughs> yeah, oh. I'm a super film nerd. Mm, nice. Well, nevertheless, that was the interview with Dr. Gooseberry. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I said it a couple times during the interview. I'm going to say it again. Go to his blog. 
hacking distributed google that uh you're gonna learn some shit okay and that goes right back to our slogan go to hacking distributed and learn some shit uh you know he's 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 documents almost everything that he thinks and it's really cool to get insight from the cornell professor nevertheless what's next on the docket fellas well valerian did you have did you is there like specifics that you're not quite comfortable with on uh, the difference between the forks i can try and elucidate as that as much as i can i'm not once again I'm not an expert, but I've read quite a bit on it. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll represent uh, all the people that can barely keep up with uh, with Gunsurer, and I will, uh, however, highlight what you just said about his uh, his blog and, and website. He writes in a style that's very accessible for considering how rocket science smart this guy is. Um, so I, I definitely recommend taking a read to to try to catch yourself up on things. Um, but yeah, the the difference between the hard fork and the soft fork. I'm gonna. Um, I guess I'll say the first thing is that, from my understanding, the soft fork, as it's proposed with Ethereum, basically just freezes or blacklists the coins, and the hard fork would somehow have the effect of uh, pretending the DAO didn't exist and gave everyone everyone's money back. I don't know if that's even broadly accurate, but let's like maybe let's just start there. That's pretty. That's pretty accurate. So uh, try to imagine this if you can. Um, you have this. So imagine like a bunch of circles. Uh, that's essentially those circles represent are like a, just a, a shitload of circles in a big old big old bunch. And then uh, if you imagine a group of those circles are all of the transactions or all of the accounts associated with. Um, so a big circle of circles is all either associated with the DAO, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and just right at like at the end of the creation phase. So anybody who has submitted ether into the DAO is one of these circles. And it's a big bunch of people who've done this. So you have you know, a lot of varying sizes and so on and so forth. Well, if we just draw like a around this circle of circles and then say anything that is associated with, with, with these transactions or these addresses essentially can't be accepted by a miner, then that's what the soft fork is. And what that means is that anything inside any ether associated with the DAO or these ch child from the DAO can't be spent. And so what that does is it locks all funds because no ether has been put back into the general com ether community, right? No one has ever taken an ether put into the original DAO and spent it anywhere else. It's only been put into sub DAOs or it still remained in, like it's still in a DAO contract. And so what it does is says ether from a DAO contract can't be taken out of a DAO contract. Okay, so how would that, um, as it stands, how would that affect the quote-unquote white hack, white hat uh, DAO? Since that basically would be, that would mm -hmm. violate the soft fork, right? You're because right. It, so what's cool about the soft fork is that it's a temporary soft fork. Saying that we're going to do, 
no one can spend any of the ether associated with a DAO. And so this allows people to try and do white hacks and try and control over all of the Ethereum associated with the original DAO, essentially trying to nullify the attack, the original attack. And if that's able to happen, then we can come up with a different solution other than the hard fork. And then so we lift the soft fork and allow that solution to happen. So okay. So all it is is just kicking the can down the road and allowing right. us to not screw it up any further than we have. It it maintains that wall around that initial circle of circles, right? And anything that happens inside that wall can happen. Stays inside. It stays okay. inside. It can't come back out. So the I guess my next question would be if you have a hard fork, which the purpose of the hard fork would effectively be to, and this is where I think I get a little bit confused. It's not really to roll back the transactions um, in the same way that the Bitcoin blockchain, you would roll back transactions or go back to uh, a certain point in the blockchain before whatever transactions happen, but it has the same effect. And I don't quite understand how those two things can be true. Okay, so uh, because hard forks work drastically differently, um, in between Ethereum and Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, you pretty much have, under my current understanding, one pretty much hard form mechanism, and that is to roll back the transactions. And by doing that, based on the way the blocks are associated with each other, you have to roll back all transactions to do that because there's no like general accounting of what address has what tokens associated with it because if you can follow the token all the way down to the Genesis block, which is how kind of the accounting works for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. then you have to roll back all associations based on ha like the way the, the Merkle tree and the hashing works. But with Ethereum, they have, have almost like a separate ledger. It's just balanced, right? With an account, with, with an amount. And they changed this based on the state so like the, the state change is stage, is changing this ledger. And then you embed information and contracts into the blockchain so they can't change. So what they're able to do with doing a hard fork is they can take a state of Ethereum network. We'll just call it, you know, say for instance, they wanted to change everything to the uh, back to the state of the original creation of the DAO. So what they do is they then track all transactions happening from the creation of the DAO to where the tokens are now. They then take the ether associated with those current accounts and then throw them into a single contract. So anything that happened after the creation doesn't matter. Those, those accounts will no longer have ether in them, such as the DAOs and so on and so forth. It'll just be in a single contract. So they okay. selectively okay. take ether from different accounts, put it into a different one and then say, and then allow only a list, we'll call them, the, the accounts that uh, were at the end of the creation phase can now retract whatever money they put into it. That's just one aspect of a hard fork. I don't know how they're actually going to do it. Okay, so if I did that though, and this is just going from my personal experience, full disclosure, I bought $100 worth of DAO tokens. When everything went started going sideways, I was like, I'm out. So. I moved those tokens to an exchange, sold them for Bitcoin. So if we have kind of a, a global reset to the point before, um, to the balances or to the point before the drain started to happen, um, doesn't 
don't I basically double dip if my balance gets reset, but I've already sold off those down for Bitcoin? Now, because that was possible and people did that, such as yourself, that makes what I just said a unlikely scenario because that is exactly what would happen. People would just essentially be able to double dip and get both both of their funds, which right. is ultimately a bad accounting error on the total value of all cryptocurrencies, right? Because if some people are able to double dip, then the underlying value that's being traded across all cryptocurrencies is off. Right. So is that we have to track essentially DAO tokens and then come up with some exchange rate between DAO tokens and the total amount of Ether that was put into the DAO. So the one thing that's remained stable is all Ether associated with all of the DAOs, regardless of who split what and where it went, right? We can just pause at the end of the creation phase and say this much Ether went into the DAO. What we can also right. do is say this much, this many tokens were created associated with the creation of the DAO. Right. So and then we say it... we set a exchange rate between number of tokens to Ether and then say, if your account has this many tokens associated with it, you can pull this much Ether out of it based on the contract that holds all of the Ether after a hard fork. That's probably the okay. only way that's going to be able to, to do what you're talking about. Okay, this is starting to crystallize. I, I do have one one big follow-up to, to that. And this is what I'm seeing in the markets. And I've heard um, on Twitter a similar kind of discussion about uh, basically a trade that is happening, which is to say when, and this is like a couple of days ago, maybe a, a week ago when the DAO was, uh, tokens were trading at half the value that they're at now, they're assuming we get to the point that you just talked about where um, we get to the end and at some point there's going to be a, um, a declaration of whatever the, the exchange rate between the DAO tokens and Ether are as they revert back to whoever possesses the current DAO tokens. Um, and that's to say, well, if the original crowd sale was what, like 10 to one or 11 to one or how, whatever the case may be, as long as the current price of DAO is below that, then you're effectively buying DAO at a discount because when we get to the end of the road, uh, if the exchange rate is 20 to one when you bought the DAO and you're going to get back um, 10 to one, you've basically doubled your money. That is, and here's the big caveat, assuming that the Ethereum token itself holds its value, which is a big question if now Ethereum is known as the blockchain that can be rolled back on a whim, right? Talking about kind of um, trying to figure out what things are worth on a lot of different markets. So that's, that's really speculation on the price of both Ethereum and the DAO token. And it's very similar to the speculation of uh, Mt. Gox and how people were trading Mt. Gox Bitcoin versus real Bitcoin. And which also was regulated by, which was also kind of speculation with the price of Bitcoin at the time. Hmm. I think that right, the Gox when coins. I had Bitcoin on Mt. Gox, and I would, I immediately traded my my, my uh, Mt. Gox coins for regular coins at like a 0.6 to one ratio at a loss because I knew I, I felt at the time that those coins weren't coming back. But there could have been a future where everyone you you could then retract your coins from 
we're very similar type of fork in the road where there's a possibility that a and only DAO tokens are frozen and the ether associated with those DAO tokens are frozen. So people with DAO tokens are just screwed. But there's also a, a chance that we're able to get all this ether back. And so if you're buying up DAO tokens right now, there's a chance that you're going to be able to make some money. Right, right. So here's the, the last thing that I'll say about this, which uh, in, you know, I've been sort of bearish Ethereum for a while at the beginning of this whole saga. I'm kind of in the middle right now. And maybe in, in the coming weeks, I'll be completely pro-Ethereum. But I think the one thing, and I know people have brought up the Ethereum Mount Gox or the Dow Mount Gox comparison a lot. Um, and the thing I think hasn't been mentioned enough is that the fact that all of this was on a blockchain allows us to have even the possibility to roll it back. Whereas with Mount Gox, everything was off-chain and then we went into a black box and you know, ultimately ended up in the, the cluster bleep the way that it, that it ended up being. Um, so definitely kudos to having this whole experience, however traumatic it is. The fact that it's on a blockchain, I think, just says wonders about where we are right now. Mm, dropping the mic on that. That's a good, that's a good point to bring in. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's allowed, I've been um, pretty involved with um, tracking the DAO transactions, the wealth distribution and what's happened with the attack and communicating with a lot of other people who've been watching the actions of the attacker and subsequent DAOs and so on and so forth. Uh, I've been involved with them really, really closely. And the fact that it is on a blockchain allows us to watch exactly what's going on it's and amazing, where things are going and when what kind of came together to make this happen. And it's like there, no other time in the world has this been possible. Yeah, and it's, what's going to come from it is going to be really interesting, and in what we're allowed to do. It's amazing. I I think that uh, to touch on something that you said of uh, uh, Valerian, you said a huge conditional about making money on this situation is if Ethereum's value stays the same or increases, and I think that due to the massive psychology, I think that it's not going to dip too far below ten dollars if it does even get there. But the sheer positivity from the, the base of the Ethereum community, I think, is what kind of keeps this Ethereum price, at least as it's compared to USD, uh, in a good range. And so given Ethereum survives this, uh, you know, puts a Band-Aid on the boo-boo and keeps it moving, I do see it maintaining its value. So, but, uh Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, even Dr. Surya pointed out, Ethereum as as a whole, the underlying technology of Ethereum and the EVM performed magnificently throughout all of this. There is nothing to blame with the underlying protocol and how Ethereum works. It's, If anything, it's a testament to how well Ethereum works. And the only real like drop in price was like a, like a fear from the or not understanding that Ethereum as a whole worked magnificently throughout all this. Mm. It's like even when you get things wrong, you get things right in crypto. <laughs> yeah. So it's that's that's cool about well, it. It's a community. Because I, mean, it, I I said this as well. DAOs 
and smart contracts and Ethereum and Bitcoin are, are going to be the future and how we transfer value, do business logic, and, and it may in some ways general computation. And these are the first steps of getting to that future and we're going to stumble along the way and how we've reacted and how we've moved forward I mean, how we're dealing with this is showing that it's it's a it's a mature community and able to handle such situations in a democratic manner and it's it's only allowing us to become stronger and stronger and making that reality much more possible definitely we're gonna absolutely we're gonna you know what i'd like to see i'd like to see tool and uh uh, uh goon Sarir. Hug like form two teams. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely hug, shake hands, and take pictures, and put that on Twitter so people can see they can get along. But maybe form two teams and get together and work together because it's not bad to have grandiose ideas. I mean, there's that one saying. I think who said? It? I think it was like Kanye West. He said, "No, I'm kidding. It wasn't Kanye West." It was, <laughs> <laughs> That was going to get back quick. I think it was Benjamin Franklin. He said, if at first an idea is not absurd, then it doesn't stand a chance. You know? So to have an idea like the Dow, completely absurd. What do you mean? This company can run itself that doesn't know that's impossible. It can't be done. It's absurd. You know, that means that maybe the idea does stand a chance if it can all get worked out. But there's got to be people to root you. And I think Dr. Serrera would root tool and his team like hey you know that's a very awesome thing you're trying to do but here's the reality of being able to get it done so nevertheless uh hopefully you know if anything we should get them both on the show at the same time that would be dope like jerry spring but i don't think it would escalate if it did it would be awesome and i had i hope that we would get to record it but i don't think it would can we get the jerry springer sound clip ready locked and loaded uh, it's, it's your job you do that <laughs> you are not the father of this child Dow. <laughs> <laughs> well do we have anything left on the docket or should we wrap it up that's pretty good i think okay larry you got any other questions or anything no thanks for uh thanks for for entertaining me uh other than uh visit pop chest and keep your ears peeled uh this august we're gonna have uh some pretty exciting news coming up this summer. So um, lips are sealed for now, but you'll be hearing from us soon. Yeah. And also, be- uh, if I've if any of us have said anything wrong, I I encourage you to write into send us a note on Twitter with anything that's correcting us with a source perhaps, uh, so that I can I can um, read that on the show and, and set things straight. I mean, some of us sometimes we're wrong. Uh, we we're not gonna like pretend that we're right all the time and if you have better information let it be known and we'll get it out there awesome like it's like our version of a bug bounty except for you won't get paid but you help nope. us make a better show <laughs> and then rate us on itunes yes so <laughs> let's let's plug some stuff so of course pop chest go to pop chest upload your things and give his aid um, thank that you is, that is slang for paid um get that pewdiepie money mm, that's right <laughs> Uh, then uh, of course the bitcoinpodcast.com that's our website our URL also if you type in the blockchainpodcast.com you'll get redirected to us and yes we're savvy like that 
Um, what that would else? be weird. What would be weird? For them to come to us by typing in the redirect. I mean, if that's your thing, sorry, just go go ahead. My bad. Wait, I don't. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Like if they purposely got to us, type to type by typing. Okay, never mind. Because they want to be on. different. Okay. <laughs> At the BTC podcast, that's the Twitter. Of course, I just want to reiterate, we have an affiliate program running uh, with Purse.io. If you're going to spend money, you could also take just a portion of that money. It'll get donated to our show. We'd have more money, therefore more time to dive deeper into more things and give you an even more, uh, I guess, uh, satiable supply of uh, Bitcoin and blockchain shit. So, <laughs> nevertheless, I think that's it. Did I get everything? Oh, once again, if you use Purse, use our link if you also like us because that helps us uh, rationalize spending so much time on this podcast. Absolutely. It helps we, us. We, we work way too hard and we don't make nearly enough money. <laughs> we're doing all pro bono work but it's good man i like it's it's good to stay up on this community so thanks community thanks guys uh play the nope go give us five stars on itunes play the <laughs> outro